Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, every season we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism, looking at a particular trope in depth across all of our episodes. And we're going to be spending the next few months talking about the most elegant, the horniest, and sometimes genuinely weirdest of monsters, the vampire. In each episode of this season, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two. We discuss the films in great depth, try to contextualize them, and analyze what works and what doesn't. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about two low-budget, but extremely enjoyable takes on the vampire tale from iconic exploitation filmmakers Herschel Gordon-Lewis, affectionately dubbed the godfather of gore, and Stephanie Rothman. First up, we'll go in-depth on Lewis's take on the Dracula story with The Taste of Blood, which sees a mild-mannered Miami businessman turn into a vampire after drinking brandy laced with blood and setting out on an odyssey, killing the descendants of Dracula's executioners. Vampire brandy. Let me say that again. Vampire brandy. And in the second half of the episode, we're moving into the 70s with The Velvet Vampire, a dreamy cult classic that sees a young hippie couple invited to the secluded desert estate of a mysterious woman who attempts to seduce them both. And if you don't get it from the title, she's a vampire and she wants to eat them. I'm joined in this episode by the writer and podcaster Heather Drain to discuss both films in depth. This entire vampire season is made possible with the support of our friends at Arrow Video, who bring you the very best in cult, horror, and genre films, and produce deluxe, definitive home entertainment editions with uncut versions and newly commissioned extras. Their collection is now vast, spanning over 500 titles, and throughout the season, we are recommending a film that we love from their selection. So this week, our pick is another one of H.G. Lewis's splatter classics, Blood Feast. Perhaps one of his better known films and uh, definitely one of the goriest. It is some glorious nastiness and comes highly recommended. If you're new to the podcast, please keep in mind that we discussed the films in detail from the very beginning. That said, there is not that much plot to spoil. But if you are averse to any discussion of a film before you watch it, consider this a spoiler warning. If you don't really mind, please enjoy a discussion about this double dose of vampire exploitation. Heather, welcome to the podcast. It's Really exciting to chat to you for the first time. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it is a total pleasure. So we've got a, a very exciting double bill on our hands of two extremely different films that I, I think kind of talk to each other in an interesting way. So I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to talk about them with you. Before we go into each one of the, the films individually, I wanted to ask you first, kind of, do you like vampire films? Kind of, what's your relationship with vampire films in general? 
Oh my goodness. I love, <laughs> I love vampire <laughs> films. I have always, I actually, um, when I was a little girl, mm-hmm. um, I was very, I'm very lucky because my mother is a big movie lover and she would like check out books from the local library on, on cinema, like various film books. And so literally some of the earliest books that I had in my hands uh, were books on film. And I remember seeing this picture of Belle Lugosi as Dracula. And even though I'm like four or five, I was just like, oh, it was like a major connection. He was my first crush. <laughs> <laughs> Can relate. Oh, my goodness. And, um, and in fact, um, while prepping for this, I, my mother, I talked to her on the phone earlier today. She reminded me of a story. And this is real quick. Mm. When I was about like seven or eight years old, um, she took me to Walden Books, which was uh, a bookstore chain that doesn't exist anymore, but it did in the 80s. And this guy comes up to me and he's like, hey, little girl, are, are you looking for a book? And I'm like, I smile, nodding. And my mother paused, like she paused him. She's like, you might not want to ask her that. And he's looking at her like she's crazy. Because I'm like this little like redhead, you know, little red haired kid with pigtails. And he's like, little girl, tell me, what are you looking for? And I'm like, do you have anything on Vlad the Impaler? <laughs> and I love it. He, I, he walked away. <laughs> he walked away. <laughs> And, she, and my mom's just like, I told you, you know, like she, um, so I've always vampire culture and cinema have, are, are no, no pun intended, very deep in my veins. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it about vampires that kind of appeal to you even from such a young age? Um, I think, I think at a young age, it was sort of the mixture of if I had to do like some, some like armchair psychology, I think vampires are kind of like a great metaphor for the monster within us because they mm. have you know, even though they could shape shift into animals depending on what myth you know mythos you're you're going into um they are the most human you know looking and appearing and they have everything that kind of you want on a primal level as a human like they're powerful they're strong mm. they're intelligent there's they can be very seductive and charismatic um, so I think there's that level. Also, like, I'm basically a goth. So I love gothic horror. Mm-hmm. And vampires obviously can play, play exquisitely well um, into that. But it's also with that, it's kind of cool to see different ways you can kind of permute, permutate um, sort of those tropes, like, especially with like European mm-hmm. vampirism. Uh in film and that's kind of that's why i'm so excited about this double bill that you have picked because these are two films that i think incorporate you know a lot of things we associate with vampire uh vampire cinema but kind of have enough little unique twists to make them very much their own movies that's a thank you for that beautiful segue that was entirely unplanned so let's <laughs> dig into the first film of our double bill, which is A Taste of Blood from 1967. A rare experience in terror awaits you. A descendant of the dreaded Count Dracula comes to life. And a hideous orgy of murder and blood begins. A Taste of Blood. The warm, pulsing blood of beautiful women, outraged and killed by this man. I'm able to stop because the blood of the Draculas surges through his veins. A taste of blood. With gasp 
ghastly scenes that will make even the boldest viewer cringe in horror. Seldom can it be said of a motion picture that it stands alone, one of a kind. A motion picture that jars you, rocks you, astonishes you beyond the point of endurance. A taste of blood is such a motion picture. So tell me, when was the first time you saw A Taste of Blood? Oh my goodness. The first time I saw A Taste of Blood, I want to say, was around like probably 2000, mid-2000s. I had um, mm. purchased a um, a box set that Something Weird Video had put out of um, not all of Herschel Gordon Lewis movies, mm-hmm. but the, the big titles and um, some of his key titles and taste of blood was in there and i love herschel gordon lewis i had already seen films like blood feast and mm. 2000 maniacs and um and i was like oh yeah it's like oh, i knew he did a vampire movie and i'm like i was excited like how is this man going to approach the the vampire genre because his um his other films are kind of more what he's best known for are these gory slasher uh, films mm. and um, he takes a totally kind of different approach with this one, which I think is really cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about Herschel Gordon Lewis and kind of who he is in the history of horror and how this film sits within his work? Oh, absolutely. Um, Herschel Gordon Lewis um, is affectionately known as the Godfather of Gore, um, and yeah, of course he was. Was he the first person to apply sort of um, crazy? over-the-top violence in films, uh, you know, as a whole, yes. I mean, yeah, there's other examples. I mean, you can go right back to, like, 1934 with Maniac, where, you know, somebody pops out a guy's eye, um, or pops out a cat's eye, and then he eats it. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> but um, but Herschel was kind of, I think, the first one uh, to apply sort of almost like a Grand Guignol mm. level of just, you know you're not just seeing like somebody get stabbed you're seeing like limbs getting cut off and guts and of course you know it's early 60s uh, special effects so some of it's you know obviously not real looking but it almost kind of makes it more gross it makes it more surreal looking mm-hmm. and i think that makes him stand out and and i think also the fact that his films i mean herschel has always gone on record as being like you know, he was a businessman first and, you know, never considered himself an artist. But um, but especially as you go through his filmography, everything he touches, like, has an approach that is only his. Like, he definitely was an auteur and kind of had his own thumbprint. And his use of color um, is really striking. In fact, and, and I know you and I have kind of touched upon this before we were recording, but um, you really see that, I think, at best play with this one and another film he did called Something Weird, mm-hmm. uh, which was made pretty close to this one. And those two films are standout of his filmography because um, the obvious is they're not gory. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I Something Weird is my number one favorite Herschel mm-hmm. uh, film. And I remember lending it to a friend of mine and he didn't like it because he thought it would be like Blood Feast, you mm. know, or Wizard of Gore. <laughs> and yeah. it totally is not. Um, and neither is Taste of Blood. So mm. it's, um, but Taste of Blood, I think you could tell, like, there's kind of more of a story. Like some of Herschel's films, you know, the plots are pretty thin and, mm-hmm. and that's okay. You know, this one, you know, 
there's a little more story. There's, you know, the fact that the lead actor, uh, who, uh, Bill Rogers, who plays John, he's actually a pretty good actor. Like some of the acting in Herschel's other movies <laughs> is a little more um, questionable. You could probably say. And <laughs> That's I say very that with, kind. <laughs> yes, I say that with total love. Uh, but uh, and, and the lighting, like mm. the lighting in this movie, is just like I love it so much. I think that you could tell there was a little more care. Um, mm put into it and plus we get to see herschel in the movie wait who is he in the movie he is this is hilarious uh he's the cockney like guy on the boat <laughs> no with the mustache yeah and the whole story i saw an interview with him on something um oh, what was it? it was real wild cinema this tv show from the mm-hmm. 90s and the the actor that was going to play that guy had backed out for whatever reason and they needed somebody you know, right then. And so mm-hmm. Herschel had like some hippie guy working on the crew and he took some of his hair. <laughs> he cut some of this dude's hair and made a mustache out of it. And he's all like, you know, oh, like governor or whatever. Like, it's not a great, I'm sure anybody that's actually Cockney or from the UK in general is going to listen to Herschel's accent and be like, okay, Dick Van Dyke for Mary Poppins. Like, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> But it's but it's so charming too because it's like oh it's Herschel that's amazing it's his little Hitchcock cameo it is it is it's so <laughs> it always makes me smile when I see him especially because it's the the Cockneyisms it's just it's adorable it's not accurate but it's adorable <laughs> it, did, it did surprise me this film because I also know um from Herschel Gordon Lewis's work what I'd seen before is very gory kind of to a very fun extreme. And this kind of isn't. It feels a lot more, um, it feels a lot slower compared to his other films, that I, at least the ones that I've seen and I haven't seen all of them. Um, so kind of, how do you think this this works as a vampire film? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great question. And actually, you're completely right as far as the running time, because I feel like a lot of his movies were more like the 80 to 90 minute mark, mm-hmm. which was pretty standard for, for um, honestly, for a lot of movies in general back then, but especially like B movies. Mm-hmm. And this one's almost two hours long, which is very, the pacing is, just, I don't think it's slow. It's slow, but it's not, it doesn't make you feel like you're, you're dying or anything. <laughs> that's the bar right that is the bar no it's it works it works it's very um and especially because yeah i mean as a vampire film it's fascinating because you don't even see him tasting the titular blood at least as far from a fresh human source until like over an hour into the movie which is crazy most vampire movies i think you would be seeing somebody drinking within 20 minutes Mm -hmm. right yeah and and here it's it's all in the brandy Oh, we got to talk about that. Yes. <laughs> this is the only, and granted, have I seen every vampire movie on the planet? No. But I feel it's a safe thing to assume that vampire brandy is not a very popular trope in vampire <laughs> cinema. And and that's the, the thing is like, we have this, our, our lead character, John, mm-hmm. um, who's this kind of swinging businessman, uh, very 60s. Anybody who's ever seen Anna Biller's Viva, mm-hmm. like it's he's like he is totally a character initially, like from that that kind of world, like just very playing golf in his office, hitting on his secretary. 
people are drinking highballs left and right. Like, I'm surprised there wasn't an intervention at some point he's for like all the a, drinking. He's like a Miami Don Draper, really. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. He totally is. And But that kind of what makes him even kind of like a fascinating target. Mm-hmm. Because this is a not likely vampire, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, he gets a... This, this mysterious package, which everybody, like his secretary, jokes about it being a bomb. And then she wakes out when he opens it. And it's, it's obviously not a bomb. It's vampire brandy. But of course, it's not called vampire brandy in the movie. But it's, <laughs> he's a descendant uh, from uh, the, was the Krons from Moldavia. And the... <laughs> It's a very, and, it's a very convoluted backstory. It's a very convoluted, and he has to do this whole ritual of toasting to his ancestors and drinking this brandy. And of course, his secretary Hester, she doesn't like, uh, she doesn't like brandy. His wife Hel- Helene is not in the mood, um, so he drinks it, and uh, and then that's uh, that's the shift. He starts to change, mm. and. Um, which is fascinating. I don't know. It's, um, you know, alcohol as a vampire conduit. Mm. I don't think I've ever seen that because he doesn't get bit. You know, there's almost something kind of fascinating where it's like, you know, you could genetically carry this. Yeah, it's not, it's not violent at all. At least the, the first half of the movie, really. Um, so kind of how do you think John works as a, as a vampire, once he once he drinks the full, by the way, the full two massive bottles of brandy that he receives. Oh my goodness. That's how you should know he was a vampire, because I think most of us would be having the worst hangover <laughs> in the world. You'd be in that bathroom, hugging, just hugging the toilet. Um, I think he works quite well. He's mm-hmm. kind of a dick. Like, he's... he's <laughs> Because he goes from just being this thrilled, just like happy-go-lucky kind mm-hmm. of lad to just being real mean to his wife, and you know, just, just, just a—he's just a terrible person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he's, but the the actor Bill Rogers has this great voice, and the yes. voice I think works so well because um, he's not like physically, he's not the most intimidating looking guy, mm-hmm. but he is interesting looking, which I think works quite well. Mm. And also when he starts, when he gets kind of vampirized, um, he, the, I found the makeup, I mean, it's very low budget, but I found it very interesting because where there's most vampires in films, especially once you get into kind of the Dracula myth, they tend to become sexier, more attractive, more appealing and alluring. He kind of gets the zombie makeup going on. And I found it an interesting choice that actually he kind of becomes a worse person once he turns into a vampire. Completely. Yeah. And I love I love that you brought that up because that's yeah, because it's like his skin gets more crackly mm. and and there's always this amazing blue light. Yeah. It's like a, a vis like almost like a visual signifier of, you mm. know, like he's out, out like working at full vamp <laughs> full oh. vamp speed here. <laughs> uh but it's it's so cool, especially because I think a lot of critics 
don't give guys like H.G. Lewis, like, the props of being... I mean, honestly, Herschel didn't always give himself that much of a credit mm. as being a talented director, but, like, there's some care mm. uh, put into this. And so, yeah, I mean, he's a... I think he's definitely a fascinating vampire. And you've brought up the 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 use of color in this film a couple of times. So, kind of, how do you think uh, Lewis uses color to... for maximum effect in the film? Um... He he plays a lot. You've got, you know, vibrant blues. Um, I've noticed that, like, Helene's usually dressed in very, like, pastel colors, like, very peachy, sunny colors, almost to kind of contrast just this darkness around her, because she's always wearing, like, bright yellows and, like, a peach nightgown mm. or, you know, very, like, sunny colors in comparison to just, like, you know, what's happening to her husband, who's just going further and further into just this darker uh, realm and uh, the the Miami location uh, is that the Miami Don Draper thing is cracking me up. By the way, <laughs> I get that's so perfect. But the the Florida and and Lewis always shot like I think most of his movies in Florida. No, that that kind of yeah the whole the blue skies mm-hmm. and palm trees also works. I think is kind of a, a, another cool contrast to mm-hmm. just you know you're because even when we see him do his London trip. And we're going to put some quotation marks around London because that's clearly some stock footage. But, you know, you got a budget. It's I'm not judging. I'd much rather see yeah. this than Avengers or whatever. But um, but, you know, it's it, again, it's just kind of like not what you kind of go into a horror movie expecting. And mm. I love that. And Herschel always like, you know, the colors were great for the gore movies because you have vibrant, vicious reds mm. and, you know, and all that where we don't really have a lot of blood in this movie um but the little bit you get i think it's so subtle that you know in the the film stock that he shot on uh is just like it works like everything just kind of just really pops mm. in a way that's very eye-catching without being uh this is going to be bizarre to say but it's not garish yeah and you mentioned kind of that there's not that much horror and i kind of alluded to it a little bit before but how do you think it, it makes use of the horror elements that come associated with vampire films usually? Um, I think it does. Uh, I think it does really well. Um, you know, especially given the limitations. I mean, I kind of, there are, there are parts where I wish he could have had more money and, mm. you know, uh, like with the music, the music is kind of all over. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little because the opening theme is totally like, "Hey guys, let's have a shindig." It's very yeah, like it's very groovy. <laughs> and but then like it does get a little more appropriate, kind of like more ominous sounding. But it sounds like they're looping. Did you did you notice that? It sounded like they were looping the same piece of music. I didn't notice because I'm notoriously bad at noticing things that have to do with music, which does not bode well for me. But <laughs> but no, I didn't notice that at all. That's so interesting. Uh, well, that that's no, it's probably good you didn't notice that. I don't think he wanted anybody <laughs> noticing that. So I'm, I'm the jerk that points it out. Um, do you think I that mean- was a budget constraint? Uh, I think there's a pretty good likelihood. Mm. I mean, I don't, I, I can't, I couldn't find anything on record about it, but, uh, but yeah, but, uh, but it's, but it is appropriately ominous mm. and the, um, just the, the fact that he, like any of the hypnotizing scenes, cause it's, um, we have to talk about the ring. Oh yes, please. <laughs> 
So John goes to to get the rest of his treasure from his family. Mm-hmm. And he gets this amazing ring, which I can't decide is amazing or horrible. Like, what did you, <laughs> that ring is so ugly, but it's like compelling. So bad. Oh my God. It's so bad, but I also kind of want to buy it. I know. <laughs> like, I, know I would, that... it's, it's like a bad Etsy ring, is what it is. <laughs> The it's sort totally. of Etsy craft ring where someone just pops a little like shiny rhinestone onto something else, <laughs> and it's like it's a gothic vampire relic. Ah, yes! <laughs> oh my god! Especially yeah. So if anybody, if if you're listening to you haven't seen the movie, there's like this ring. It's sort of like a chunky. Mm-hmm. like square piece of silver metal with a like with like a bedazzled heart <laughs> and and the letter d in red lettering and then like a, a a brighter silver circle it looks like it is etsy that's that's actually better because my initial i think notes on it was like it looks like something you would buy in a really like sketchy kind of a cult shop in the 60s like you could see like them having like oh this is your witchy ring to yeah hypnotize like, women or something like that like and, in a uh, cult book like in a cult souvenir shop in like yes. a shanty seaside town <laughs> oh, i want to go to that store right now <laughs> and i and i'm with you i do kind of like it's ugly, but I love it. Like, mm. I totally want one, too. If anybody's <laughs> listening to us, you should make this for us. Yes, please. Thank you we very would... much in advance. Yes, we appreciate it. We'll plug you. <laughs> we'll do. We'll, <laughs> we'll give you the whole the whole five-star review. <laughs> <laughs> and um, before we move on to the next film, um, kind of what do you mean? We have to talk about the key dynamic or the key confrontation of the film, which is again between, you know, John slash Dracula John and Van Helsing. Oh yes. Um the confrontation is totally fascinating. And I say that because it's intercut with basically the police have joined forces with a um, a relative of the original Van Helsing who knows that he is, you know, on the chopping block. He knows, you know, because he's seen other descendants of the original party that murdered Dracula. I say murdered, I'm like, like I'm on totally pro Dracula over here. But um, uh, and he's joined forces with Hank, who is like a best friend of John's, but also a former lover of Helene's, and they're trying to save her. And so there's like a good tension and you have like a lot of nighttime shots and it's around this sort of amazing looking kind of like grounds, like there's a pool. Mm. Um, And so that stuff's really well, but then you have like this drunk dog walker who's there is like, I guess, comic relief, but it, (laughs) I was to this day, I'm like, why is there a drunk dog walker near the climax? Is he's like, oh, my dog, she's a real good detective. You know, it's bizarre. It's so, but that's why I kind of love movies, you know, like weird movies is that yeah. no other, who else is going to put that in their movie? Nobody, you know? Um, so I liked it. Um, I kind of, the one thing I was a little confused about, especially rewatching, is initially Helsing says that he's trying to save both John and Helene. Hmm. and so it kind of makes you think you know maybe there's still something within that's john that's not dracula um but i don't know maybe the fact that he's tasted like actual spilled blood maybe it's too late for him i mean they don't really go into that i mean they don't really go into that 
at all, do they? No, no. But the film's almost two hours, so maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably fine. <laughs> And kind of to wrap up about this film in particular, for anyone who is still listening who might not have seen it yet, is this a horror film that you recommend horror fans seek it out? Maybe as an introduction to the work of of H. Lewis? It depends on the horror fan. If you're a horror fan who already has a curiosity of certainly more like off the beaten path horror films, mm-hmm. especially from you know the past, like something from the sixties or fifties or seventies. Um, I would hi- I would definitely recommend it. I definitely would not recommend it as an intro to HG Lewis. Um, if you haven't seen his other works, just because, you know, or actually, I don't know. It's so different. Like this mm-hmm. one and something weird are so fascinating because they really are, like not like the other movies in his filmography at all. And and granted, Lewis did a lot of different kinds of movies. Cause I mean, he started off, you know, working in like nudist movies and he's made roughies and he made a children's movie. <laughs> I mean, I think what? I, yes. Um, I haven't seen it, but I know, I know he did it. And I want to say it's like Jimmy, the boy wonder it has a title like that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm suspicious. I gotta I'm, say, I'm very suspicious. That's why I haven't seen it. I'm like, I don't trust this, but um, <laughs> but I love I love Lewis. Um, so as an intro to Lewis's film, no. But if you're somebody who wants to see um, something different, mm-hmm. and especially see a vampire film that that doesn't that kind of doesn't fit in with whatever I think stereotypes you may have, I w- I would definitely recommend it. Amazing. So. On that note, let's move on to chatting about the second film in our double bill, The Velvet Vampire from 1971. You'll meet her at night in a dark place. She's beautiful and she's waiting for you, waiting to love you to death. Who was this strange and beautiful creature who called herself Diane? Who lived among the dead and the forgotten? Diane, there's one thing I don't get. The headstone said your husband died in 1875. And what were her sinister plans for the attractive young couple she enticed into her evil world? What was the source of the malignant power by which she drew them into an endless night of unearthly horror? Michael Blodgett, Sherry Miles, and Celeste Yarnow in a strange triangle of love and death and terror. Okay, so this Stephanie Rothman vampire film, it's 
again, so odd. Such an odd little film, but so wonderful to watch. So same kind of question to you, you know, what's your relationship with this film and, and how has it evolved as, you, as you've rewatched it? Oh, man. Um, the Velvet Vampire was a film I remember reading about as a kid. Mm. And just the title alone, I was like, what is this? I mm-hmm. must see this. <laughs> and, um, and so when I finally get to see it... Uh, I was not disappointed and that's and it, it's because it took me several years to, to get a copy of it and to finally see it because it was out of print for a long time and uh and I, now it was just it, there's a there's a beauty I, I I think there's definitely kind of a weird mm-hmm. ethereal beauty about this film that I find incredibly just kind of enchanting I love that you pick those words because you're very right it's very dreamlike isn't it like the atmosphere of the film I found very soft and unsettling at the same time. You know, all the bright, colorful cinematography, the fashion, the desert as a setting is very Anne Vampire-like. So yes. what did you make of the of the atmosphere that it creates? I loved it. <laughs> I, I love the atmosphere in this movie. And and for all of the things you've just mentioned, um, especially because I think I've always personally found the desert, um, like I'm saying that like I've been to the desert. I've actually still need to visit the desert once, well, once the pandemic's over with, obviously. <laughs> but um, but I've always found the, the desert to me has a beauty about it, but also a starkness. It's mm. kind of, it, which makes it so perfect for a vampire because it's almost sort of like the desert is a vampire in a way because it's beautiful, it's alluring, it's mysterious, but there's a lot of death. There's mm. a lot of, it's a harsh atmosphere for life to thrive. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of genius. And it's sort of strange how few, um, well, probably not vampire films, just horror films in general, but especially vampire films have really taken advantage of that. Because um, as far as desert ones, the, the only ones that, that are coming to my mind are like Sundown, The Vampire Retreat by mm-hmm. Anthony Hickox, which is kind of like a comedy. It's definitely not really anything like The Velvet Vampire and Billy the Kid versus Dracula, <laughs> <laughs> which is also very much not like no. <laughs> not like The Velvet Vampire. But um, I loved it in the colors. Like mm. again, not to tell you, but there's so much red. Like and it's just like when we first see our mm-hmm. titular Velvet Vampire. Uh, played by the gorgeous and just amazing Celeste Yarnell. She's wearing this this red outfit that I want to buy. These boots. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, oh. all of her outfits, um, I, particularly, kind of not to jump way too much ahead, but her final outfit at the end of the film, that little romper, <laughs> little black, black and white romper with a little yellow bow at the waist. Yes, I, I loved it. <sighs> Those black boots, the the stockings. I mean, she looked like she should be like fighting crime with Patrick McNee and the Avengers <laughs> in that outfit. I'm living for it. And I again, loved it. not to not to make this all about Mad Men, and I'm actually not rewatching it, so I don't know why I keep bringing it up. But it had like big <laughs> Mad Men vibes as well. It's very much you know like Don Draper's second wife. That's who she is. <laughs> Which you know, in other words, amazing. She's, yes. So, so great. And uh, just, yes, the desert. And I love um, 
just the casting. Mm. I think this film was impeccably well cast. So what do you make of the of the three lead actors? So you mentioned Celeste Arnall already, who plays kind of the, the vampire, the vampiress, Diane. Uh, but she gets embroiled with these two, with this kind of young, very beautiful hippie couple, Lee and Susan. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, because uh, I have to reveal something. I am a huge huge fan of Beyond the Valley, the dolls mm-hmm. and, and just Russ Meyer in general. Mm-hmm. But Michael Blodgett, you know, who plays yeah. Lee, the, the husband, he, uh, he plays the gigolo who gets beheaded and Beyond the Valley, the dolls. Mm-hmm. And I love him so much. And he's, <laughs> and he's so good at playing such a little shit. And he is such a shit in this movie. <laughs> Lee uh, and it feels so bad because his his wife Susan and you're right they and they do they are totally like the prototypical California blonde looking mm-hmm. couple they're gorgeous and but Susan like poor Susan like he's immediately just ignoring her and at one point I was just like I kind of hope Diane and Susan just leave him like they should just go be a lesbian couple and ditch him because he's terrible. <laughs> Well, Diane tries. Diane (laughs) really tries. And Susan is like, I don't, what are you doing? I don't understand. And ruins everything when they could have just been perfect together. I know. I I did kind of want to shake Susan a little bit. Like, girl, you have the keys to the kingdom. (laughs) You've got this beautiful, because that's the thing, like, Diane's, like, desert estate Mm -hmm. is so beautiful. Just, like, even the, the architecture of it, the furniture... Um, and the, the bed, that's the thing. We have to talk about the dream sequence. Yes. I mean, this whole film feels like a dream sequence, but yes, let's go into the dream sequence in particular because it's still, it's like a, 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 like a weird horror lullaby. That's what it felt like. Oh, that is the most beautiful descriptor. I love (laughs) that. And you're, and you're completely right. And, and, uh, and there's such a, approach to it there is like the way that stephanie rothman Mm. just it just everything feels like gentle Mm -hmm. but gentle with where you know it's almost like the it is like like there is a piece of velvet that's soft and it's beautiful Mm. but right underneath it is a blade oh that's exactly what this film is Ah, and I love it. And the dream sequence, I, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this. The first thing it made me think of was the Fleetwood Mac music video for <laughs> Hold On. <laughs> but which which honestly is is taking elements from Magritte. Like mm-hmm. I, if I wanted to sound smarter, I should have just said, oh, it makes me think of Magritte. But I gotta be honest, I'm like it was Fleetwood Mac first, but uh, I mean nothing to be ashamed of there. I, I love yeah, I love Fleetwood Mac, but uh but no, it's just the this amazing like bed and mm. you know Michael Blodgett and his wife they're making love, but then he gets pulled away by Diane in this red dress that just flows with the wind. Like mm. she looks like a angel of death, but like but in the most you know tempting sort mm-hmm. of way. And and the fact that he's naked, like mm-hmm. I mean, we don't get full frontal, but the fact that we get to because there's some toplessness in the film, but at least we got some male nudity, which a lot of these films didn't always give the ladies anything, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, you're very right. And like, I think there, there's a couple of things that I want to mention on that note. It's like, well, 
I think it's a good point to bring in Steph- who Stephanie Rothman is because she kind of did quite a bit of work with um, in the sexploitation arena as well. So not just making um, a horror exploitation films. And it, it almost feels at times that this film feels more comfortable as a as an erotic horror as opposed to just a straight up vampire film um what do you make of the of the way that she films their nudity and their sex scenes because weirdly for they're not they don't always work but in this film i think maybe it's a combination of the beautiful colors and these gorgeous actors and kind of the the weird I don't know, psychedelic atmosphere of it, but it seemed almost to elevate the sexual element of it more than the horror element. Yeah, no, I would I would agree with that. It's it is kind of a good. I do think it is. Uh, it feels like a natural mix of like eros and horror, mm. which are perfect for vampires, and um, it felt very natural because sometimes there there are films you see where it's like the the sexual elements or the nudity is implemented in a way that's very obvious like very obvious and it's not mm-hmm. really there's really no skill put to mix the two mm-hmm. um like any anybody remembers buying like anything for redemption video in the 90s they'd have those opens with eileen daly who i love eileen daly but it'd be like her like ripping off like some huge breasted woman's top and drinking blood and it, it was just like whoa guys <laughs> like it was it was a lot which um but which which that can have its own charm too i'm not i'm not hating on that but but i think what stephanie rothman does with this is it feels very i don't know it felt very innate like nothing Mm -hmm. to me felt exploitative or done in a way that was titillating it just felt Mm -hmm. very sort of natural in some ways and this may be a really weird comparison but especially with the character of diane I it reminded me a lot of Daughters of Darkness. Oh yeah, no, I don't think that's a weird comparison at all. I kept thinking about that film too, and not not least because of the color. I think like the color red is very similar, like the actual color that they use for Diane's dress and her kind of her main aesthetic, really. But also because it's it's this alluring, mysterious older woman who just comes in and wants to seduce everyone and you never really know what for but you kind of know what for but still it's the (laughs) game the cat and mouse game that she plays with with the couple oh absolutely yeah i mean it's there's quite a bit of parallels there and especially because celeste yarnell too she has that you know it's not just that she's beautiful and the same thing with delphine serig Mm -hmm. and darts of darkness but she's able to play a character that's very compelling and even sort of likable like you could see yourself being charmed by diane if Mm -hmm. you were in the room with her but she's also can be quite vicious and um I mean, I think the key difference may be that, you know, with the the John Carlin husband character in Daughters of Darkness, there's a lot of shadows mm-hmm. there. And he's very fat. He's kind of his own sort of fascinating character with a dark hint where Lee is just kind of a like a him like instead of what they call him a himbo, like a male bimbo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, so that that would be there's a lot less shadows with Lee yeah. as a character. But um but it's just it's so it is so beautiful and the and the fact that um we get to see a vampire who moves around in daylight. Yeah. I wanted to pick up on kind of something about when it was made and released, because this is sort of made it 
feels very peak hippie and it was made and released in the middle of that culture and I think kind of this a couple of the things that you mentioned like like um Lee being such a himbo basically and then being kind of these this prototypical California couple and the desert and the vampire in the daylight as well like it's very it feels very of its time do you what kind of what do you think it how do you think kind of that culture feeds into this film oh um very well uh and especially i i kind of i love horror movies from this this small time period too because the the thing with like the counterculture is there was sort of an openness to it to things that were very esoteric and very like the occult and mm-hmm. you know and witchcraft but then there's also a lot of people got kind of scared with the whole manson murders and in fact yeah. um you know there was uh oh gosh no like with the the manson culture in, mm-hmm. in horror films like you had uh you even had the movie the death master with robert Corey, uh where he plays like this vampire who's also like becomes this leader of a hippie cult Mm -hmm. and there's something about the counterculture that kind of inspired fear and fascination with people and of Mm -hmm. course with exploitation films the whole free love and you know people kind of definitely uh would implement that into into b movies and and horror and sexploitation as well so there's there's something that just works so well and with it but it's also kind of more interesting you know to kind of see it's always more interesting to see characters that are a little more on the fringe than uh you know than just you know kind of a well i say that i love taste of blood and our characters are totally like middle america you know business so it's all good (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i would definitely put this film right next to films like the death master and actually Mm -hmm. both count yorga uh films are brilliant and and have sort of side characters that kind of fit within the counterculture and how do you think this kind of fits into that and we've spoken about a few of them on this podcast kind of how do you think this film fits into that wave or that trend of putting in um female led and very often uh queer leaning um vampire films that kind of there was a whole bunch of them in the 70s and you know we've spoken a little bit about daughters of darkness that probably be one of the most beautiful ones Mm-hmm. Oh god, that movie—it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it fits like a glove. I I think it it, it fits perfectly, especially uh, with having a character like Diane, because it's I I think it'd be easy on paper, especially mm-hmm. if somebody hasn't actually sat down and watched this film to be like, oh no, is it going to be offensive? Is it basically going to be like anti-gay and have the mm-hmm. and it's it's not I I didn't get that from it at all because Diane. There is we see enough about her to her to be sympathetic, mm-hmm. and you can definitely at least I got the feeling that I think Rothman clearly kind of loved that character, and and Yarnell like was you know was a talented enough actress to kind of bring mm-hmm. uh, a warmth as well as like a seductive element uh, to her, and she's so intelligent, like mm-hmm. she's a smart character, which you know. Uh, makes her likable i mean and honestly like again it's kind of like next to leave i mean yeah susan would have been much better off <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with with diane to have a partner who's you know at least intelligent and cultured and doesn't like oh the, his line where she she catches him susan catches him making love with diane and the next morning you know kind of is you know being very sort of um 
smartly kind of messing with him mm-hmm. about it, which I kind of loved. I was like, so, okay, Susan has some layers. That's cool. But then when he's trying to like butter her up and be like, oh, Diane's not my type. I'm a Susie freak. <laughs> and it's like, oh God, you're the worst, Lee. Like, well, but to answer your question, I think, I think the Velvet Vampire just fits, fits perfectly within that, uh, within that sort of subgenre of vampire films. I really love in their dynamic how they kind of, she tries to play them against each other. Like one of my favorite lines that I wrote down is when she very casually mentions to Susan, Lee's nice, but he's not very observant, is he? <laughs> I I legit clapped at that line. I was like, oh my god! And then I was like, Susan, just go with just go with Diane. She's lovely. You get to have this yeah. great house, and I loved the character of Juan. Mm, yeah, what do you think of him? I um I thought it was such a cool because a, a cool twist on the vampire sort of servant, mm-hmm. you know, and the, which you know people you might associate with like you know like a hunchback and mm-hmm. sort of some instances or you know like Renfield or Yorga. Yorga has a silent giant mute. Um uh and this film has another thing in common with Count Yorga, but I'll get to that in a minute. But um but Juan is like this human character. He's not like a you know, he's not sort of a deformed outcast of society. You know, he's this actually kind of like handsome man who's grown up. We find out he was raised First, he says raised with Diane, but then we find out raised by Diane Mm -hmm. and that he there's references to him basically being the last sort of of his reservation and which kind of almost indicates that his family were probably devoured (laughs) by Diane. But uh, but they never they never they never give you too much. That's kind Mm -hmm. of the cool thing about this film is they give you just enough little details to kind of paint the picture in your head. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you were going to compare it to Count Yorga. Yes. And not just because I love both of them. And I am a, I, I love Count Yorga. <laughs> That's, that, that, could be, that could be a whole other thing there. But um, both films, and it's funny because Count Yorga came out a year before this one because it mm-hmm. came out in 1970. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one came out in 71. Have the twist. And, you know, we're, you know, with this film... Susan, spoiler alert, which granted, I don't think we should have to spoil a film that's like 40 plus years old, (laughs) but I know people get sensitive. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, basically, Susan meets her demise in a cool, very Laurent effect, because in the early in the film, you see like one of the early shots you see is a cross. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, that basically ends up being her undoing is this giant cross and being cornered in a really kind of creepy kind of scene with mm-hmm. susan and all these other people it makes you feel bad for diane it's just weird it's like yeah. day of the locusts or something <laughs> but like or night of the locusts but um and then susan goes back to her friend carl stoker which <laughs> this film has a lot of little illusions like that yes. of course, diane's last name is la Fanu. but um and he's comforting susan and she's just like well how did you know diane and she finds out he has the same dagger that Diane did. And Kel's surprise, Carl's mm-hmm. a vampire. And Susan is now food. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> food. 
And Yorga, the mm-hmm. first Yorga film has, of course, I will say this, I think Yorga pulls off the twist a lot better, mm-hmm. um, especially because there's uh, fangs involved and it's like, you're, you're like, holy crap, like, you're just totally like freaked out in the best ways that, um, but yeah, but it's, it's definitely not to demean anything, this film. I think it's a beautiful film mm-hmm. and one that should definitely, I'm so glad that we're talking about it because I feel like it, it should get talked about more when people speak of vampire cinema. Yeah. And I was going to ask you actually, as we, as we kind of start to wrap up a little bit, it wasn't a massive commercial hit at the time, but it's kind of consistently been shown around at screenings of festivals um, and, you know, in repertory cinemas kind of, it's not as talked about in maybe horror circles that much, but it's still a cult film. Like it's become a cult film since then. And what do you think the appeal is? I think the appeal is that it's, um, it has its own unique sort of flavor and approach mm-hmm. um, with, you know, with everything we've, we've spoken about. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think the fact that it's, there's something just very alluring about horror from this time period and everything that you could say that's alluring about horror of this time period from like the early seventies, like mm-hmm. say pre Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. um, this film has, it's dreamy. It's, you know, it's sexual. Um, it's ominous mm-hmm. and it has a great cast. I mean, I think the only thing I would, I would say is a negative of this film is the, the soundtracks, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of equally all over the place, kind of like taste of blood with the taste of blood is such a quirky film that, that it almost, that kind of worked for that film. Mm-hmm. And this one, I do kind of wish had a, a better soundtrack but that's a really minor complaint because i think it's it's a great film and i think i think when any, anybody times when any filmmaker makes something that's interesting mm-hmm. and something that you could tell they they truly invested in then that's a film that's always gonna have that avail- availability to be rediscovered mm-hmm. and to kind of bring both of these films together um one of the reasons why i wanted to put them together is because they're both both made by uh, on very low budget by filmmakers who are very often kind of just considered just pure exploitation filmmakers, um, but have been really rediscovered and reappraised in the years since they they were active. Um, but how do you think these more lower budget vampire films sit next to the glossier entries into the genre? I, th- I think they sit quite nicely, um, especially because the the beauty of having a vampire uh, as a supernatural sort of being in your horror movie is that you don't really need that much creature effects. Mm-hmm. Like it's a lot harder to do a low budget werewolf movie without it looking like a bad school play kind yep. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. I'm not going to name any names to protect the guilty, but I'm sure we, we all have seen a few that mm-hmm. it's like, Oh boy, that's, that's rough. But, <laughs> but uh, so I think vampire films work very well with low budget, but also, um, I think it's, you know, if you have a filmmaker that's got a vision and who is very creative, a low budget kind of makes you, it forces you to be even more creative and forces you to kind of think, well, how can I create an atmosphere and something that's evocative uh, on with only this much? Mm-hmm. And I, that's why I think sometimes some of the best films are films that don't have a lot of budget because it's forcing, you know, 
it's forcing a creativity that otherwise wouldn't be tapped into. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, like, look at, I mean, look at somebody like Kenneth Anger or mm-hmm. Maya Darren, and their stuff is some of the most visually uh, amazing, impressive, you know, film you're ever going to see. And I mean, there was no budgets for mm-hmm. those, you know, or very little. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think when, when a horror filmmaker can apply that kind of, those kind of elements and approach and just make it just completely just free that sort of visual mind in a way um, it's, it can be just some of the best stuff. Before we finish off, I wanted to ask you kind of where do you see the influence of these films on, on more contemporary horror filmmakers? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. (laughs) Partially because I'm so rusty with like newer uh, filmmakers. I'm not proud of that, but I can, <laughs> I can admit my flaws, you know? Um, I don't know if I see a huge influence, mm. but, um, but I like to think, and I think there's always hope. It's so easy, um, for people to get sour. You know, I think we've all heard a friend or a peer say, oh, no, there's nothing good now. And mm-hmm. things are, and that's never the case. There's always Lies. good art. There's always, always, always good mm-hmm. art being made. And there's always terrible stuff too. But there were terrible, there were terrible movies made in the 70s. And I'm, I'm sure some of us have seen some of those too. And again, <laughs> I won't name any names, but you know, they're there. And um, so what I guess, what I could rephrase that is that I w- the elements I would like to see filmmakers, newer filmmakers take from these films mm-hmm. is um, approach things from a dream-like aspect. Approach mm-hmm. things with an eye for color. I think that's mm-hmm. something newer horror movies really kind of lack is that that palette. Like, Because mm-hmm. think about it, like Italian, some of the best horror films are Italian. Yeah. And it's because of that color palette. Mm-hmm. And it's like... Because think most nightmares aren't in earth tones, <laughs> you know. Oh my it's like, god! And it's the earth tones that just oh my god. Because even and I and you know because look at this film, Velvet Vampire, set in a desert where mm-hmm. there's nothing but earth tones, but yet the you know everything like the blue skies, her red dress, the mm-hmm. green cactus and flora and fall, everything just pops. And that's the thing. I would hope they would take the color. Um, aspect but also don't don't worry about making something that's conventional the the two these two films both i think are perfect examples of filmmakers of two filmmakers who put their own unique approach to their films in very different ways and you know i i think i fear sometimes with like indie filmmakers that they they work so hard on trying to make something look like hollywood product Mm. but we don't need that we have hollywood product don't worry about making it look like that make something that looks like your own and look like your own thumbprint. And that's, that's when you get great art. I love that. What a wonderful note to wrap up on Heather. Thank you so much for your time and for your wonderful insight into both of these films. And where can people find more of your work online? Oh my goodness. Well, you could, um, you can find me at my website, which is mondoheather.com. And also, um, you could find a lot of my articles over at diabolikemagazine.com. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much again. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. It was a total pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or just a rating. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalgirls.co.uk and subscribe to our weekly newsletter or and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalgirls.uk. You can also follow Heather on 
You can also follow Heather on Twitter at Mondo Heather and dive deeper into her work on her website, which is mondoheather.com. And I am frequently tweeting inappropriate gifts of vampires over at Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, we're going fully into the 80s with a discussion of Fright Night and Near Dark. <laughs>